Welcome to Activate Church Podcast and thanks for listening. We hope this message helps you and we pray that God speaks to you through this week's message. We had a small group on Wednesday night at, at my house and uh, one of the guys, uh, he, he said to me, so how has your week been? And I said, I said, oh, I know this is cliche, but it's been really busy. And he said, oh yeah, what did you do? And I said, I don't know. And uh, I don't know if that ever happens to you. I'm like, I was literally crazy busy for like uh, Wednesday, I mean for Monday and, and, and Tuesday and Wednesday. And then I could try to think about what I did with my days. And I literally, I know I was busy the whole day, but I could not tell you one thing that I actually accomplished or did on that day. And that's always a really, I guess, a really bad feeling. And, uh, but this is kind of like the way that my brain works. So oftentimes what happens is if I do not think that the information is important, it, I just let it go and, uh, and I don't remember it. But um, even though I couldn't remember what I did just two days ago, there are actually all these moments that are in my life that are really life-defining moments. And they are things that I can remember with absolute clarity. Um, for example, uh, I remember when I was younger, I watched... The Karate Kid. And that was a life-defining moment. I mean, I watched it, and after that, I was like, I think I want to do karate or something like that. You know, I, it was a life-changing experience for me. And then I watched episodes two and three, and I tried to forget that I watched them. And, and so, because number one was just the best. If you don't know, you need to. So, um, so anyway, I, I, I remember watching The Karate Kid. I remember that. I remember my baptism. I remember the day that I got baptized. It was a really defining moment in my life. It was a very significant one. I remember it with great detail. I remember, I remember when I was younger and I had to go to hospital and uh, we didn't know what was going wrong with my body and, and, uh, and I had this serious illness. And, and so I remember being in the hospital. I remember uh, you know, looking at the, at the doctor and wondering what was going to happen next. These, these moments I remember. I remember... The day that I got married, that was a very important day for me. It was the day that I realized my life was truly not my own anymore. And, uh, and then to reinforce that, we decided to have children, and now my life really is not my own. It pretty much belongs to the other four people in my immediate family. And so I remember those days. I remember when I had my son Judah. He's our, he's our oldest uh, boy. He is eight years old. And I remember this moment where I was holding him in the hospital, and he was just the most beautiful thing that I had ever seen. And, and no one else was there, and it was just me and him, and I was looking at him, and he was looking at me, and I remember that with such clarity because it was a life-defining moment. And when it comes to really your life and, and the defining things that happen to you, I have realized that life doesn't boil down to this one event. It's not this one defining moment. Life is actually a series of defining moments that actually build up towards something else. And we, we call all of those things that happen, that's, that's your life. And all of those defining moments that I just spoke about, they were things that we had planned. Like we had, we had planned all of those things. Maybe that's why it's easier to remember. But a lot of your life-defining moments will be totally unplanned. You didn't see them coming. You didn't know that it was going to be a life-defining moment when you woke up in bed that morning, but something unplanned 
happened and it changed the course of your life. I remember years ago, I was in a job that I absolutely hated. And, um, and this was one of those jobs that you take when you really want a better job, but you have nothing between where you are and where you want to be. So you take the job that you know is not good just to get there, right? This is the kind of sales job where they play techno music at 7 a.m. And I don't even like techno music and it shouldn't be played at 7 a.m. And so anyway, we, this is what they did. And, 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 and the environment was so fake and, and like, if you don't know me, just know this. I have a, I have a aversion to phoniness and fakeness. I can't stand it. I just hate it. So, so everyone, you know, in this job, everyone would get into the room together. And because everyone's trying to be pumped up, because we're about to go out for a day that, in all honesty, is going to suck. And so, and so because of that, everyone's trying to have a positive attitude. How's your day? How's your week? And everyone's like, it's good. But really what we were thinking is, I hate my life right now. And I wish that this was all over. And, and so anyway, I, I just couldn't do it one more time. And I went up the stairs and I was, I was halfway up the stairs. It was on a second story of this building. And I was halfway up the stairs and I just stopped. And I just had this moment with God. And I said, God, I said, I don't think I can do this again today. I cannot walk into this room and I cannot be fake and I cannot pretend that I actually enjoy this job because I hate it, right? And when I said that, God spoke back to me and he said to me, but I'm not ready for you to leave just yet. I want you to stay. And this was a life-defining moment in the sense that at that very moment, I really did have a choice. I could have just said, well, you know what, God? That's great that you want to do something, but guess what? I don't want to do what you want to do. So I'm, I'm leaving and I'm quitting. But I decided against that and I, and I decided that, you know what, God, if you, want to, if you want to teach me something or if you want to change something, whatever it is that you want to do, I'm prepared to stick around to, to see that happen. And it became a life-defining moment. I'm, I'm convinced that some of the opportunities that I have now are a complete result of the fact that I was faithful back then. And because of what I did back then, God said, well, if I can trust you with the small things, maybe I will entrust you with some bigger and more important things. I learned something through that process because really what I said to God that day is, why am I here? Have you ever said that? It's like, you're just like, all right, why am I here? Like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be a part of this. Why, why am I? Why do I have to be here, you know? And I've realized that when God wants to change an environment or a place or a person's life, he always does it by sending his people into that space to change it. This is how he does it. He sends people into that space to change it. And... Uh, one of the things that I recognize is that God is very good at sending, but he is sketchy on the details. In other words, like how many people have said, God, I will do what you want. And then he tells you and you say, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. But you don't really even know what you just signed up for. He doesn't give you the details up front because you'd quit before you even start, you know? And so he can be a little bit sketchy on the details. And, and sometimes what happens is, is you know, we, are, we walk into a situation or a circumstance and, and when you have, or if you've ever had this thought where you, you see a situation and you say, man, this, 
what is happening right now in this environment or this person's life or, or whatever it is, right? Man, this is wrong and, and someone should do something about this. It's you. You are the person that God has sent into that environment to change it. The, the reason why you're there and you know that things need to be changed. If you just look at the circumstances, you realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm here. Why am I here again? Oh, okay, something needs to be changed. If you think that someone should do something, that person is you. Just look at the person next to you and say, it's you. Look at the other person just in case they weren't convinced and say, it's you. And you are the person that God may be sending into a situation or a circumstance just to change it. And I, I want to I wanna tell you a story tonight about a woman who found herself in a circumstance and she, and she, was, she didn't plan for this. This is not the way she was planning things to work out in her life. But, but she found herself in a situation where she was responsible to change it. So I just want to preach a message to you guys tonight called Change It. Just called Changes. So this woman that I'm talking about, her name is Esther. And this story takes place in the Old Testament. And at the time when this was written, the Jewish people are currently being ruled by the Persian Empire. And the Jewish people have been scattered throughout the Persian Empire. So they're no longer just in one place. They're just scattered throughout the the empire. And the king at the time, his, his name was Hazarus. And it even sounds good when you say it. Just try it. Hazarus. Yeah, it feels good, doesn't it? I don't know why, but it does. It feels good when it comes out. And so, and so Hazarus was actually, he had two names. Uh, he was also named, named uh, Xerxes. How many of you would have heard of Xerxes? Yeah, I don't know why they gave him two names, but I didn't write the Bible. So anyway, he has named Hazarus and, and, and Xerxes. And he was married to a woman uh, who was the queen, of course, because he was the king. And her name was Vashti. And Vashti was a classy lady. And so one day, uh, the, the king, Azarus, he says to Vashti, hey, would you come out? And I want you to sort of entertain my friends. And she's a classy lady. So she says to him, I am not doing this anymore. I'm sick of you and your mates. And I'm not going to do this anymore. So, so I quit. And he says, you quit. You're gone. So he gets rid of her. And he starts a two-year process to find a new queen, to find a new wife. Well, meanwhile, there is this um, young Jewish girl. Her name is Esther. And she's an orphan. And uh, she is being raised by her older cousin, a man by the name of Mordecai. And the Bible tells us a couple of things about Esther. It says that she was beautiful and good to look at. In other words, she was hot, right? She was hot. And so uh, Mordecai, uh, recognizing, you know, he says, well, you've got a few things going for you, sweetheart. So he says to her, listen, you should think about actually applying for the role of queen because I think some of those attributes that we just discussed would go well for you. So she says, okay. So she goes through the process. And wouldn't you believe it? She actually becomes the queen and she marries Azarus. But what she doesn't do is she doesn't tell Azarus 
her background, her origin, she doesn't tell him that she's Jewish. So he doesn't know really where she's come from. You'd think that's like a first date kind of conversation, but he obviously doesn't care. So, so it, it just never came up, you know? So, so meanwhile, this King Xerxes, he has people that work for him. One of those uh, people was a man by the name of Haman. And Haman was a, a very, very prideful man. He would have been a total name dropper, loved to tell people how important he was. And he had a signet ring, uh, which was really, the, uh, a signet ring is a ring that you wear, and it means that you operate with the authority of the king. So when, uh, when Haman would say something, it was as if the king was saying it. And, and he was so revered that, that when he would walk around, everyone would have to bow to him. So, so he, would, he, would, he just loved it. He would walk into a room and everyone would bow to, to Haman and, you know, wherever he went. Um, and everyone would do it except for this one guy named Mordecai. And he would never do it. And even though you don't really read it in the text, uh, the reason why Mordecai uh, would never bow is because when they did bow, they were actually saying, we recognize you as a god. And so he said, well, I don't, so... I'm not going to try to pretend that just because you're a king, you're also a god. You're just a human being like, like us, and, and I worship the living God of, of Israel, so I'm not going to do that, right? Well, Haman hated that. He absolutely hated it. He hated the fact that uh, you know, he wasn't shown the proper courtesy and, and, and respect. So because he was so disrespected, he actually makes a plan with the authority of the king, and he makes a plan to basically wipe out all the Jews. That is what we call a disproportionate response to the situation, you know? So you didn't bow to me. I'll kill your family. I'll kill everyone you know. We will wipe you out. And this is how he did it. He actually sent letters that went all over the Persian empire. And he said, you have Jewish people living among you. There is going to be one particular day. And on this day, we are going to wipe them out. We won't do it slowly. It's all going to happen on one particular day. We might call this day a defining moment in Israel's history. So he makes his plans. And because he personally hates Haman, oh, sorry, Haman personally hates Mordecai, he plans to hang him personally himself. So he begins the construction of these gallows so that he can, he can hang him. So this is the plan. Meanwhile, you know, uh, the plan leaks because people can't keep a secret. So, so the plan leaks and Mordecai hears about it. So he goes to Esther and he says this thing to her. He says, hey, I know that you're the queen and uh, you live uh, with the king, but don't think that you are exempt from this order that is going out. Don't think that you are safe. If people find out that you're Jewish, they're going to kill you too. And then he says to Queen Esther, Esther, you must consider at this moment that the reason why you are queen is not because you're hot. You must consider that the reason why you got ahead of everyone else is because God knew that there would be a defining day, a moment in history that would require somebody in a position of authority and power. And so God, recognizing what was going to happen in the future, installed you into the kingdom early, the Persian kingdom early, so that when this happened, you would have the power to change it. He said, you must consider that. And at this very moment, Esther looks back over her life and she realizes 
for the very first time why she's there. She may have never asked that question before. This is a totally unplanned and yet defining moment. But she suddenly realizes the reason why she's there. Sometimes the reason you are where you are is so that you can change it. And I don't know everything that's happening in your world right now, so I don't really know what your it is, but your it could just be your workplace. But it needs to change. Your it right now could be a sickness. Somebody's been diagnosed with cancer or some form of mental illness. And and you see that. And as a person who understands uh, how things should happen in the kingdom of God, you, you say, hey, this isn't right. Somebody should do something about it. It's probably why you're there. And so you just are put in a position where you can change it. And you start to look back over your life and you start to see all the things that have happened in your life and you realize that those were events that really became preparation so that one day God could actually send you into an environment so that you could change it. God has led you through a number of battles and some have resulted in victories and maybe some are losses. But even though everything has happened the way it's happened, these things have been preparation and God has been doing things in your life, getting you ready so that one day he can send you into an environment that needs the power of the Spirit of God to be at work in it. And he sent you there so that you can change it. You know, often the things you think are going to break you are the things that make you. You think that it's going to take you out, but it all depends on your perspective. If you would be familiar with the story of David and Goliath, David's a 17-year-old uh, you know, young guy who has to take on a giant, this warrior called Goliath. But Goliath is really just, in every sense of the word, a huge opportunity for David to get closer to the throne. And where everyone else was worried about what Goliath could do to them, David just saw his situation differently. And where everyone else saw fear, he saw opportunity. See, sometimes your greatest battle might just be your biggest opportunity. Battles are often an invitation to a better destination. And your opportunity, it comes in the form of a battle. It's just something that you need to face. It's something that you need to look at. It's something that you need to deal with. You didn't ask for it. It It's a a defining moment in your life. And you just happen to find yourself there, totally unplanned, but there's an opportunity there. And this is where it becomes defining for you. If you always run from every battle, you may never realize that God, the whole time, he was trying to give you an opportunity to have victory. And that's why you're there. That's why 
He sent you. Sometimes you need to let your big problems know how big your God is. And you see a really big problem and you say, do you know how big my God is? Sometimes you just need to face your situation and say, uh, <clears throat> do you know who I am? Maybe you shouldn't say who I am. Maybe you should say it more like this. Uh, do you know whose I am? There's a big difference. Do you know whose I am? I know that this situation looks big. I know it's a mountain of a problem. I know this is one of the biggest battles that I face, but I'm not really seeing this like a battle that I can't fight. I'm actually seeing this as an opportunity for God to do something significant. And I do not plan to run from this battle because what I want to see is what God will do when I place my life in his hands. And I am prepared to put myself in this position so that later you can send me into a situation and I have a history of faithfulness so that later on you will set me up and send me so that I can walk into a situation that needs to be changed and I can change it. I think that a lot of the time when we face really difficult things, our confidence really doesn't come from like how smart we think we are. Oh gosh, if that's where all your confidence comes from, you are going to have some major problems in your life. You know, your confidence really shouldn't come from how powerful you think you are because it's not by might or by power, but it's always by God's spirit that we overcome the biggest obstacles that we face in our life. And so your confidence, I mean, the psalmist says it. He says, let our confidence be in the Lord. So your confidence needs to be in the Lord. The only problem with that sometimes is that you don't see him. Like, am I the only person that knows that God is invisible? Like, surely he is to you too. Maybe it's just me. But to me, God is invisible. So I don't really get to see him all the time. And you know what's really interesting? As I read this story tonight about this woman named Esther, is that in this book where we see some of the most amazing things take place, God is never seen once in the story. Yeah, there's actually no mention of him in there. Isn't that amazing? It's, I mean, the book is about him, and he doesn't even get a look in. He doesn't get a mention, and I think that that's unusual. It's, it's, that's pretty unusual for a book of the Bible, and it doesn't mention him. And yet, you know, if you read what commentators say about this passage, they say, in order for this plan that they had to save all the Jewish people, there were five major miracles that had to take place. And without even one of them, it would have been impossible for everyone to be saved. And so even though we don't actually read his name in the story, if you take a look, you can see his hand at work sovereignly in the background, setting up situations and setting up circumstances. And when you know who God is, you don't have to see him physically manifest in front of you for you to develop the confidence to walk forward and face whatever battle is in front of you, you should know by now that God is at work in the background, sovereignly guiding you, protecting you, setting things up, setting up your victory so that you can walk into a situation at some point in the future and change it. You should know that he is always at work. And and maybe for you to, to get confidence, you've been just waiting for God to show up in a, in, a, in a significant way. And you say, well, I just don't see him. Well, I haven't seen 
him lead me or I haven't seen him guide me and he hasn't told me exactly, you know, like what to do. But you know what I would say? I would say you probably need to look again because sometimes I've discovered that in the middle of my situation, yeah, sometimes we don't always see what God is doing. But if I look back over my history, I see God's hand at work setting me up with different situations and and, and giving me victories and giving me a history and teaching me and training me and getting me ready so that one day he could actually send me. And you should know where you see where God is going, you know where he's going to take you. You kind of know what he has been setting you up for. And knowing that God is with you, even when you can't see him, gives you the courage to be the change you want to see. And sometimes, you know, we we look at situations and circumstances. I mean, look, if you were going to be honest, you should be confronted on a regular basis with things that happen in this world that are completely out of kingdom alignment. You should be constantly confronted by things that are not as though they should be. And you should be confronted by that. And the next time you are confronted and you say, somebody should really do something about that. It's you. That's why you're there. That's why you know about it. And God may have actually sent you into the situation so that you could change it. And I know that oftentimes that requires a lot from you, but you should know something about God. When he ever asks you for more, it's because he plans to supply what you need. Maybe you didn't get that. Let me try again. When God ever asks you to do more for him, he plans to supply what you need so you can pull off the thing he just asked you to do. In other words, he qualifies the cult. He finds people that are willing to trust him and he says, I'm going to do something with your life. And you've got to realize that a lot of what God asks people to do is next to impossible. It's not always impossible. It's just sometimes like right next to it. Like so close that you think this is unlikely. It's all right. It's it's cool. Like we've all been there. But you should know that God doesn't plan to orphan you. He doesn't plan to leave you there. So let me tell you what happens with this story. The peasant queen goes to the Persian king. And she goes to him because she's been given a position of power. As the great theologian Ben Parker said, with great power comes great responsibility. For those of you that are not astute in the literature that I'm talking about, this is actually Spider-Man's uncle. With great power comes great responsibility. I think that's a really good lesson for you to learn. You should know that when you've been put in a position of power, that God sometimes expects you to be responsible with it. That when he sets you up by putting you there in that position, giving you authority or giving you power, he puts you there so that you could be responsible with it and do something about it. So anyway, Esther, recognizing that her life is just as in danger as all the other Jewish people, she, she stands, she goes to the king's court and she stands in a place where the king will see her. Now, she can't just walk into the court 
Because if she walks in and approaches the king and he hasn't summoned her, he can kill her, right? Just for approaching him in that way. I know it seems unfair, but this is how it is. So she stands in a place where she knows the king will see her and he sees her and he says, Esther, come to me. And so she comes to him and he says, what are you doing here? Like, what do you want? And she says to him, well, you know what I would love? I would actually love to invite you um, to dinner. Because the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? So she says, why don't you come to, to dinner? And he says, it's a wonderful idea. And she, yes, I would love to. I would love to do that. And she goes, oh, and by the way, could you invite your friend Haman as well? It'd be really great if he was here for this dinner. And so the king says, great, I'll invite Haman. So he goes to Haman and says, uh, so the queen has invited you to a dinner. Haman was probably like, well, how many people are going? And it's like, well, it's just the three of us. He was like, yep, he's a name dropper. So he went around everyone saying, just want to let you know I'm going to a dinner. It's just me, the king and the queen, because we're so tight like that. And it's just the three of us and there's going to be no one else there. It's just the three of us. And, and it's just, did I mention it was for dinner? And the queen invited me and they're like, yeah, we, we, we get it, Haman. So anyway... He, he, he goes along to this dinner, and they have a good old time. And, and at the end of the dinner, the, the king, because he's kind of smart, right? So he goes, Esther, like, what are, we, what, are we, what are we really doing here? And she goes, you know, this has been such a nice evening. Um, why don't we do this again tomorrow night? Uh, let's just come back and have dinner tomorrow night. He says, okay. So they all go out from that place, and they say, we're going to have dinner the next night. So, so Esther and, and the king, they go off, but Haman goes home, and he's still bent on, on wanting to hang Mordecai. So he goes home, and he starts to make sure that the gallows that he's building to, to hang Mordecai are all set and prepared, and he's planning on doing this thing really soon because the day where they're going to wipe everyone out is nearly upon them. So it's all, it's all building to this. And so anyway, they go to dinner the next day and, and the king is there and the queen is there and Haman is there and he says to her, this has been a lovely dinner, but come on Esther, like, what are we really doing here? There's a reason for this dinner. And she says to the king, yeah, there, there is a reason. There, I just wanted to explain to you that there is a plot that is against my life and someone is playing to kill me because the thing that I haven't told you is that I'm Jewish. And I reckon around about this moment, Haman probably choked on his food. He was probably like, <clears throat> and he's thinking, did she just say that she's Jewish? And it probably occurs to Haman why he's now with the dinner. So he's like, where is this going? I think I know why I'm here now. And she goes, yes, and not only that, but the person that put this plan in place plans to wipe out not just me, but all of my family and everyone I know and all of my brothers and my sisters. Man, the king is enraged. He's like, who would do such a thing? I'm going to kill him. I'm going to take him out right now. Haman's like spitting his food out across the table. You know, he is peeking, right? So, so she says, the person who plans to kill me is Haman and he's sitting right there. And Haman probably looked at the king and he was like, I am in so much trouble. I never saw this going this way. So he kind of freaks out and the king doesn't know what he's going to do because this is, he, he trusts Haman, right? So he gets up from the table and he walks out into the garden to think about what he's going to do. Well, Esther's now sitting at the table and it's just her and Haman and that's a little awkward. So, so... <laughs> So she leaves and she goes and sits on a couch somewhere and Haman says, the only way I'm going to get through this is if Esther goes and begs for my life and 
You know, there's slim chance, but come on, let's try. So he goes in and, 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 and he's kind of like groveling, if you can imagine, groveling to Esther saying, could, could, can you please beg for my life from the king? Like you're the only person that's going to be able to change it. And, and, and so the, the groveling is intense, right? So he's almost like, like, almost like kind of climbing on top of her sort of a thing, like groveling and, and pleading for his life. Well, this is where it gets really awkward because around about the time that he seems to be climbing on top of her, the king walks back in. And he says, what are you doing? First of all, you plan on killing my wife. Now you're trying to sleep with her. Like, and I'm just outside, you know? So he walks in and he sees this situation and he says, you know what? I'm going to hang you on those gallows that you've been preparing for Mordecai. And that is exactly what happens. He takes Haman and he ends up getting hung. And God does this great reversal on this day. The day when he was, when Mordecai was going to be killed, it ends up being Haman that gets killed. And I told you all of that because I wanted to read to you this scripture. I know that we are so deep into this message right now and, and we really haven't read from the scriptures. And I want you to know we're not that kind of church, but... The scriptures are very important, but if I did not explain to you the rest of the story, what I'm about to read to you just wouldn't make sense. So I want to read to you out of uh, Esther chapter 8 and verse 1. You guys should have this on the screen. It says this, On that day, King Azarus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. In other words, Esther said, Mordecai is, is my cousin. And so the king understands this. And the king, uh, and the king took off his signet ring, which remember was his authority. You remember whoever, had, this is why I made a big deal of it before, so you would remember it now. Um, the, the ring is the symbol of authority. So whoever has this ring can act with the authority of the king. You got that? You with me? All right. So he takes the signet ring off, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai, and Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Well, this is a great reversal, isn't it? Because now Haman has got the ring that was originally used to seal his fate, but now he's the one that's got the power of the king in his hand. It goes on to verse 3, and it says, Then Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded. And I stopped there as I read this and I thought, that's really interesting. That at this moment that Esther would come and she would beg and plead for the king to change it. I thought it was only interesting because Haman had lost the ring and Mordecai now had the ring and because he did it, Mordecai already had the authority to change it. And it was interesting to me because I realized that maybe they didn't quite understand how authority works. Can you imagine people that are begging for something from their king when their king has already given them the authority to change it? You get what I'm saying here? They already have the authority to change it, but they're begging for it. So they must have not have understood how authority really works. And so she pleaded with him to avert the evil plan that was set in motion, the plan of Haman the Agagite. 
and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, if, like, I mean, if she hasn't found favor yet, I don't know what she's looking for. If I've found favor in his sight, and if this thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing to his eyes, let there be an order written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadath, Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Azarus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given, I've already given it to you. What you're begging me for, I've already given. Because you have got the authority now to change it. So he's helping us to say, don't, don't you understand that, that I actually gave you the ability to change it? I have given Esther the house of Haman and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. And I thought about that for a minute and I thought, you know what? If the king was willing to hang Haman, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews, how much more would he be willing to support the total destructions of the plans that were going to roll out after they were set in motion? That makes sense, doesn't it? Like, I mean, if he was willing to hang Haman, don't you think he would support the full destruction of the plan that, that was still in motion? I just thought that that was interesting. He says, but you may write... As you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. In Mordecai's hand was a ring that gave him authority to change his situation. He had the authority. He just didn't know how to use it. Let me tell you how the rest of the story really works out. As soon as he realizes that he's already been given authority and they don't need to beg for it immediately, he knows what to do. So he begins to write letters and he sends them out across the Persian Empire, letting all the Jewish people know that there is a day that's coming, a defining day, when people are going to attack us and they're gonna, we're going to be in a battle and, and they're going to attempt to take you out. But you should know that you don't have to just take it you can fight back. And just so you know, when you decide to fight back, we have the authority of the king to take this battle to them. And when they end up going into battle, God ends up reversing the whole situation and changing everything about it. In fact, it's so good. Let me read it to you. This comes out of chapter nine. It says, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. It was the opposite. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And I looked at that situation and I realized that the day of destruction ended up being the day of their salvation. 
And what they thought was going to break them was the very thing that ended up making them. It was the thing that protected them. And if they had run from the battle, they never would have found their freedom. And God had presented an opportunity for freedom. It just came in the form. It was a big invitation that came in the form of a battle. Only because he sent them into battle, he supplied everything they need. And it was an absolute miracle. And they destroyed every army that came against them. Don't you get it? That when God sends you somewhere, He plans to supply what you need because he knows the thing that he's asked you to do is exceedingly difficult, but he gave you authority to change it. I started to think about this. I started to realize something that we have in common with Israel. See, we have an enemy as well. We have an enemy that comes against all of humanity. And from the day in the garden that he convinced Adam and Eve to go against God and to turn their back on God, it set the wheels in motion for a plan called sin to roll out through time and history to destroy the human race and to keep God's people from him. So the wheels are in motion. I don't need to convince you of this. You should walk outside and see this. You can see it every day when you wake up and you turn on the news. You already know that this plan is in action. But, but, but. God sent Jesus to come and as the scriptures say, to destroy the works of the devil. And so he sent Jesus into the world and Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for people's sins. See, if you're new to church, this is the best thing about about having a relationship with God. It's not about you being a really good person so God will like you enough to have you. It's completely about him. If you're not a Christian and you're new to church, you should realize that the way you have a relationship with God is actually just through believing in the Son. And when you put your faith in Jesus and believe that the cross, uh, when he died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for people's sin. If, If you believe that he also died for your sin, in that moment you have a relationship with him. And you make a decision to follow him and everything is different. So Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And then later, we already spoke about this earlier tonight, that he was resurrected. And, you know, on the day that he was resurrected, he completely emptied the enemy of all of his authority and power. The scriptures even talk about it. They say, you know what? The worst thing that can happen is the people, the the, the curse of sin is death. But the Bible says that death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And it was on that day that the devil was defeated. Now, here's where it gets really cool. The devil was defeated on that day. But we understand that like Haman, the wheels of his plan are still in motion. And if you understand this correctly, what I'm telling you, is that even though the wheels are in motion, God has given you the authority of the king to change it. And if you've ever wondered if God would show up and answer your prayers, maybe you just need to look back through history and realize if he was willing to defeat the devil back then, don't you think that God would support the full destruction of all of his plans that have tried to be rolled out through time and history? And so if you've ever had a prayer and you wondered if God was going to answer it, you should know that of course he supports it. He's actually sent you to change it. And he's given you the authority so that you would be able to do it. And when you realize the authority that you have in your relationship with God, when you realize that, your prayers begin to change. 
Instead of being like me on that day when I said to God, I hate this job, get me out of here. Your prayers shift and change and you start saying, God, don't take me out of here. God, don't, don't take me out of here because I realize that I've been sitting here to change this situation. I've been sent here to pray for that person. I've been sent here to make sure that that curse of cancer would not prevail over that person. I've been sent into my work environment to change it. So God, please do not take me out of the world. But I ask, would you make me bold for ministry? Would you make me bold to do the things that you've called me and asked me to do? Your prayers begin to shift and they begin to change. And you say, God... I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know what you've done in my history. I know where you're taking me in my future. And I know that you've called me and sent me into this situation to change it. You've been sent to change it. I want you to stand here. We trust you enjoyed this week's message. For any more information about Activate Church, check out our website, www.activatechurch.com or download our app online and have a great week.